everybody. Welcome back to Ask an Addiction Specialist. I'm Dr. Bob Weathers. Very happy to be here with you. And I've got my friend, Odie Martinez, <coughs> accompanying me. We have Austin uh, Armstrong in, in the studio. He's producing today's show. Odie and Austin work on this every week through multiple platforms. Let me mention to you that you can access previous podcasts, which we'll be referencing today. You can access those through multiple sources. You can go through YouTube. You can go through Beginnings Treatment Center, who uh, sponsor us uh, along with Therapy Cable. And uh, you look at podcasts on Beginnings Treatment Centers, and there's a whole year's worth of podcasts. Uh, you may be accessing us through the Facebook group, Ask an Addiction Specialist. All roads lead to Rome, and we're glad that you're here with us. So thanks for joining us. <clears throat> a real quick word about <clears throat> my background. By the way, a word to those this week. We've had uh, fires throughout California this week, and a word of support and um, solidarity with those that have <clears throat> really suffered um, in this experience. We're here in Orange County, but the air has been extremely dry, mm -hmm. and there's particulate matter in the air. And so I'm going to be sipping water today because I've been noticing the last few days that my throat gets drier than usual. So um, bear with us. We're pleased to be here. Uh, my background's in psychology. I teach locally at a, at a university, California Southern University. <clears throat> I was working this morning on reviewing three different doctoral projects. I <clears throat> work with about uh, two or three dozen students who are currently doing their doctoral projects in and around the topic that we'll be looking at today as we have typically looking at issues around addiction and recovery. And I'm uh, very, very grateful to be able to do that work. And it suggests the perspective that Odie and I bring to the conversation is primarily a psychological perspective. And there are multiple perspectives, and we've discussed this in previous podcasts, multiple perspectives, all of which I see as being pertinent and valuable in discussing addiction and recovery, including a biomedical perspective, for, uh, for sure a, a spiritual perspective, which is central to uh, the 12-step programs, for example. Also feel like there's a lot of worth in looking at sociological and legal perspectives on, on addiction and recovery. <clears throat> and we can certainly look at cultural attitudes towards addiction and how that, that uh, uh, impacts so much uh, recovery uh, from addiction. So we'll be primarily coming from a psychological perspective. That's my own background. And, uh, and I hope that you'll add this to um, whatever other perspectives that you, you bring to this conversation. We have individuals in our audience who are themselves in recovery from addiction, as I am, and I'm really happy to have you here and welcome you. We have the loved ones of those that are in recovery who've been uh, affected by and want to understand addiction recovery. You're very welcome. We also have treatment healthcare professionals that are with us today who are uh, uh, interested in adding new uh, knowledge to your uh, armamentarium of working with addiction. So we're honored to have you with us as well. <clears throat> Part of my work, I just was talking with Odie and Austin. I came from Beginnings Treatment Center today. We've relocated to a new setting in Costa Mesa, just came there today, and I come fresh from the men's group every Wednesday afternoon. My work there is as a recovery coach, and, and uh, most all of what I do is in the realm of recovery these days. And a good bit of what I do is I lead uh, uh, about eight groups during the week, and I work with a, a number of individuals and couples and families all around the issue of addiction recovery. And so um, it keeps me in the field as well as uh, feeling committed to my own recovery. So that's a little bit of my background, and it informs very much where we're going to go uh, in any given session, including today. <clears throat> the last two weeks, we, we took two weeks to cover what I referred to as the roots of addiction, looking at the psychological origins of addiction. And I promised last week, and we're going we're gonna to discuss this today, today's topic is the way out of shame. Um, uh, by the way, please feel free to submit any comments or questions you have that may come up as we're going along here. Austin is faithful in sending your questions and comments to Odie and I, and we do our best mm -hmm. to discuss them. So I want to invite you to interact with us today. <clears throat> we'll also have a couple, three exercises later on. So if you have a piece of paper or if you have a tablet handy uh, for writing some notes, that will serve you as we go along too. <clears throat> so the topic is the way out of shame. And we've covered shame in, in considerable detail in recent podcasts. It's enough right now to, to, to say that from a psychological perspective, we see shame as one of the primary roots of addiction. That feeling of uh, feeling like we're excluded from uh, a social group or, or 
and or don't feel good about ourselves is, is really how we understand shame. And that we've looked at uh, uh, in, in great detail how this serves as one of the roots or origins of addiction. In fact, the last two podcasts address this specifically. Now, the natural move, it seems like to me, would be to want to do what we can to silence shame. We have an image here of, a, uh, of, of, of what I think would be instinctive for us, would be just coming, what can I do to erase or silence shame? And in fact, this is where it gets dicey because as I meet with the individuals I meet with every week who are early in recovery from addiction, most all of them are fully aware of shame and have found a successful way in the short term to deal with shame, to eradicate shame, and unfortunately, that's via the addictive behavior. Mm -hmm. yeah. And so whether it's a substance or another behavior, one can at least temporarily find an oasis free from the weight, the burden of shame. <clears throat> What's built into this then is something that, that we're going to talk about today in terms of a catch-22 with, uh, with shame and with addiction. And let me just mention real quickly, the idea of a catch-22 is that we run into these in life, and I believe this is one of them, where there's a dilemma uh, in which you're stuck. You can't find any way out. And the reason you can't find any way out is that your various solutions collide with each other. Technically, it's a dilemma with no way out because of mutually conflicting options. My solution conflicts with a, with, with a problem, and that problem leads to a, a, another uh, pseudo-solution that leads to another conflict. And so you get yourself in a hornet's nest. Let's talk about what this looks like in addiction. Mm -hmm. If you think about, uh, and, and you're going to think about this because we have an exercise for this. If you think about any area in your life where you have felt uh, uh, less than okay about yourself. We've talked about this in terms of shame, where I feel down, I feel uh, 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 wrong, I feel bad, I feel defective, I feel like there's something broken. Any of those kinds of images is that guaranteed from a psychological perspective, that experience of low self-esteem or shame <clears throat> will increase my stress level. And when my, increase, when my stress level increases, that will be attached to craving for some kind of relief. Mm -hmm. And for somebody who's used addictive behaviors as relief, that increased craving will lead to using, heading towards using the addictive behavior. For the case of somebody in recovery, it will lead to relapse. Mm -hmm. And so it goes like this. Shame leads to craving. Craving leads to relapse. And unfortunately, relapse to the addictive behavior, this is where it wraps in on itself because that relapse will lead to further shame. Mm -hmm. So you can see kind of the built-in it's really a vicious cycle. We have an image here of a vicious cycle where you just get trapped in it and you get stuck going in a downward spiral. So I feel bad about myself. I try to find a solution to feeling bad about myself, at least short term through the addictive behavior. The addictive behavior leaves me feeling bad about myself. Yeah. And there's a couple of reasons where we feel bad about ourselves. One is that if we're attempting, for example, to stay sober, from whatever our addiction is, then we failed, and that doesn't feel good. Mm -hmm. And then secondly, we have loved ones in our lives, in our lives, much less culture outside of us, that says that addiction signifies that we're losers mm -hmm. in some version or another. And so the very thing that I've used to solve my problem, this is back to the catch-22, the thing I've used to solve my problem actually creates a worse problem, and we go further and further down the, the spiral. Um, the, the, the phrase I've used for this in the past is, the poor get poorer. And what I mean by that, if I start, if I start with, uh, if I feel poor about myself, well, just wait. As I engage in the addictive behaviors, chances are outside of the short-term relief is long-term, I'll actually feel more and more impoverished in terms of mm -hmm. my self-esteem. Now, does that part make sense so far? Yes. Okay. Any comments on that? I'm still a little, I'm trying to catch up a little bit on the saying of the catch-22. Like how it's uh, conflicting. Yeah, yeah. Um, it would, here would be a catch twenty two. If if Bob, you you if you have self esteem problems, then you should get over that. Uh -huh. Okay, okay. Well, okay, I'll get over that. And so I get over that by choosing something that's worked for me in the past. And then the next message is, oh Bob, but you shouldn't be addicted. Wait, 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 wait. You said if I'm ashamed, I should get over that. I found a way to get over that. My way to get over that is not okay. So, Bob, you shouldn't do that. So, well, I'm back to feeling back to my original shame. 
but you shouldn't feel ashamed. You should get over that. And so you end up, no matter where you go, it, my, my way of translating this is you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't. Okay. I'm damned if I go this direction, which is addressing my shame. And certainly if I don't address it and it just sits there, I'm damned if I don't. So either way I go, I'm up a creek without a paddle. Okay. I, kind of th I thought of it this way. It usually happens. Um, I'll see if I can explain this. So I'll be wanting to get a haircut. Okay. And, but I want to shower. Right. So should I shower first or should I get the haircut? Okay. And then just shower again. But I don't want to shower twice. Is that yeah. kind of similar? <laughs> I think it is. I think okay. it is. I'd far rather have that dilemma than the dilemma <laughs> we're talking about. But I think there are, I think these do come up in life. It's like, uh, here, here's another example that, that I hear. Well, I hear this a fair bit mm -hmm. with the clients I work with. I'll use you as an example just right now. Okay. Yes, please. Odie, you should get a job. Okay. Okay. Well, Bob, I apply for a job, and what they tell me is I need, a, I need to have job experience. Mm. Well, how do you get ex job experience if you don't get a job, but no one hires you because you don't have job experience? Mm. So built into that is this conundrum or this, I mean, how, how, how do you get out of that? Yeah. It's like, well, I'd like a job, sir. Well, we don't hire people that don't have job experience. Well, sir, how do I get job experience if you don't hire me? It, it, it's just, it's an impossible situation. Right. And in our case, dealing with individuals that, that have addiction, imagine adding that to it, mm. is that I'd like a job. Well, you have a felony in your background. Mm. For yeah. Many of my clients do because of, of uh, selling and buying drugs. Uh, okay, well, what I'd like to do is clear my name, clear my record, and I'm, I'm a, I, I can promise you that I'm so committed to sobriety. In fact, getting a job will help support my sobriety. Mm. Well, we can't give you a job because you have a felony. And so, so what you're saying is something that, that I'm committing to you, that I'm going to work hard for you, and I'm also sharing with you that this would be something very significant for, for my own recovery mm -hmm. is impossible because I'm in recovery. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and or I have a felony. Right. I don't know. And I, by the way, I'm not making light. I'm, we're laughing about it. I think the laughter is just the impossibility of yeah. some of these situations exactly. in life. Is that there's not a you, you can't go you can't go either way. There's no wiggle room. I see this every day with clients that I work and with. And it comes at a at a time where yeah you you don't know if, whether to cry or to laugh about it. Yeah, you know, so. yeah. I'll give you an example that touches closer to home in my work. Is I work with families where understandably family members of those that have been in addiction mm -hmm. are angry, hurt, distrustful. Right. And so. So I'm working with the family member as well as with the, the individual who's in recovery from addiction. Mm -hmm. That individual will say, one of the most stressful things for me, they'll oftentimes say this, the most stressful thing for me during any given week are my interactions with my family. Mm. And the family's stressed out because the person was addicted. Mm -hmm. And so it's like you can understand both positions. It's, right. like it's very stressful to look at people like, like your husband or your wife, your father or mother, mm -hmm. and you know that, that they don't trust you at all. Mm -hmm. And, and that's very stressful. And how do, you, how do I recover? Well, I recover by ideally reducing stress in my life. Mm. But I've got built-in stress, especially with those that I love the most. And so, so oftentimes that person will say, I want you to trust me. And, and the family member will say, well, how can I trust you? Because you've lied to me so much. Right. It's just it's, yeah. this, these kind of built-in binds. And so whether they qualify officially as a catch-22, there's a lot of mixed messages that go on. Right. I'll, give you, I'll give you another instance of it too, Odie, is, is that we talked about this today in today's group. I asked the group, are you all familiar with the double bind? Mm. And no one raised their hand. Generally, somebody raised their hand. And I said, a double bind is this. A double bind has two different binds. The first bind is where somebody sends you a double message. So I, the example I gave was of a, of, of a parent that says, I love you to a child as they treat them unlovingly. Mm -hmm. okay. And there's, all, there's a whole range of treating somebody unlovingly, unlovingly including right down to abusing them. Mm -hmm. And so that that, that's a double message. It's a conflicting message. That's just the first bind. Mm -hmm. The second bind is that person uh, has power over the person saying the double message has power. In fact, the words I used today was has survival value for the person who's receiving mm -hmm. them. So, for example, the parent of a child has survival value to that child. Right. So not only is there a double message coming in that's confusing, you say you love me, but you don't treat me that way. Yeah. And then secondly, and you have power over me. Mm -hmm. And so I asked the group today, I said, well, 
what is a child's option? And they said, well, the child really can't challenge that, can they? Mm -hmm. Up to a certain age, the child can't challenge that because the parent can literally set the child out on the doorstep and they'll perish. Mm -hmm. And so I said, well, what do you think happens? And somebody said, does the child then somehow try to make sense of that? And I said, yeah, I think that's what happens is it makes us crazy. Oh, this is what love is. Love is the opposite of love. Mm. And so you begin to develop these templates or blueprints inside because you can't dare challenge the parent mm -hmm. or the boss right. or the spouse. I mean, there's lots of examples of this comes up in life. And if you're in a position where you can't challenge somebody, then you're left holding that inside. And oftentimes it breeds anxiety and confused thoughts, let's mm. say. And we didn't get to this today, but one of the ways out of that, one of the ways of breaking a double bind is having somebody else you can talk to that's not insane. Mm. So, for example, if you and I are brother, brothers mm -hmm. and we have a crazy parent, we can go, that's crazy. And that way we don't go crazy. It doesn't right. change the fact that this is going on and we, do, we can't yet leave home, but at least we're talking to each other. Right. But imagine if we don't have each other. Mm. The child just left with that, and that's, that's seen as gospel truth. It's mm. very confusing. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Reminds me of uh, of a movie. Uh, I don't know if it completely relates, but are you familiar with Carrie? No, Carrie I know of it, and I've never seen it, so you'll have to tell uh, okay, me. Okay, so it's pretty much just... Uh, it's Sissy Spacek, right? I, I don't know. Okay, I read, I read, for some reason I associated with that movie, and I've never seen it, so go ahead. So it's it's about a, a child that has mental or not mental telepathy um she's able to move objects with her mind and she's a single uh only child and the mother is insane okay and so the mother says abuses her uh -huh. and says because this is, i'm doing this for your own good right much. for your own good gives you a clue right there that that there's probably a problem built into it that's good there's right. actually a whole book just called for your own good and it's about this <laughs> Yeah, and then she doesn't have anybody to talk to, yeah. and even at school she's a problem, or not a problem, but she's not very popular in school as well. So pretty much all of this builds up throughout the movie, and at the end it just has a very disastrous ending, pretty much. So. I can imagine, because all, all of those telekinetic powers directed right. towards towards <laughs> revenge probably is not a pleasant thing, is it? No. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Well, I know it's very relevant, it seems like to me, uh, in all of this. It's like, and all of us have some version of this. None of us get out mm -hmm. scot-free. And even if you survived your, your growing up years with relative sanity, and uh, some, some people do. My dear friend John, whose mother just passed away, we mm -hmm. spoke earlier today, he had two loving parents, and he's, mm -hmm. he's always presented that way to me. And he said, he said, I mean, really, really loving. I mean, in, in yeah. case he's been with both of them when they passed away in recent years. And what I was struck by is I said, I have any number of friends and acquaintances, and it's so uh, unusual to have somebody who had two parents that was that nurturing mm -hmm. and that really affirming his whole life. I mean, mm -hmm. it's really extraordinary to me. And I, I can see that as it manifests in, in my friend John's life. Mm -hmm. is he's incredibly loyal. He's got a lot of strength of character and ethics. And so it's really a beautiful thing to see that. Mm -hmm. But that would be the exception it seems to me, at least in terms of the people I know, in terms right. of my life right, in friendship, and then the work that I've done over the years clinically, it's, it's relatively rarely the case. Mm -hmm. The work that I do now in recovery coaching is that the statistics are this, is that out of a, out of a population of those that have experienced um, more than, than average, higher than average levels of what they call adverse childhood experiences, including trauma, is that there's almost a 100% correlation between that group and the addicted population, mm -hmm. is it leads to addiction. And really, we're talking about some of that right now, is that anything that, that uh, chops away at my self-esteem makes me more vulnerable to addiction. Mm -hmm. For that matter, being exposed to early childhood trauma raises our baseline of our stress hormones, like mm -hmm. cortisol and adrenaline. And so those that have experienced uh, higher than average levels of childhood trauma carry higher than average levels of cortisol, right. which means you're walking around with a high level of stress just mm -hmm. by virtue of what you grew up with. And so it, it leads into this, and, it, and, and the kinds of things we're talking about, whether it's with Carrie at one extreme, across the whole continuum, right. uh, uh, make us more vulnerable, it seems like to me, to addiction. Mm -hmm. uh, in fact, I'm not gonna say it seems like to me, there's research to suggest that it, it 
it, it, it has been proven that there's a huge correlation between these stress levels um, uh, in terms of early development. But let's say that you survive, like my friend John. Mm -hmm. Certainly all of us have worked in a work situation. You have mm -hmm. to work with Austin. Think about it. Right. <laughs> Sorry, Austin. I just had to make a laugh. He's pouting right now. <laughs> no, we work in situations where they're less than optimal. And so yeah. it can be a boss. It can be, it can be a teacher in a university setting or mm -hmm. in school where you have somebody that's, that has power over you and they send these mixed messages. It's very disturbing. It's very mm -hmm. disturbing. And so, so what we're talking about is, is how this disturbance, whether it leads to shame or just heightened stress, how it will manifest in terms of addictive behaviors. We have an exercise. Let me ask you guys to do this. Can you think of a time where you resorted to addictive behavior as an antidote to what Odie and I are talking about right now, which is stress, mm -hmm. double messages a la carry, and shame? Can you think of a time that you resorted to an addictive behavior? It can be to a substance or some uh, behavioral addiction as an antidote to shame. And there's a second part to the question. I want to ask it at the same time. And that is, can you recall responding to that addictive behavior? For example, in the case of relapse, can you recall responding inside with heightened shame? Mm -hmm. And so it starts off by, I feel ashamed and I resorted to addiction as a way to relieve it. And then in my, in, in by choosing that way of relieving it, I actually incur uh, further shame. Mm -hmm. So I'd like you to think about that for just a second. And Odie and I will do the same and then we'll, we'll share. Do you have a thought about that? Um, mm -hmm. Invite that, and I'll and I'll also respond and invite our audience. If you if you care to share something with us, you're welcome to. Odie, I was thinking about. I I sometimes. Sorry. That's okay. <laughs> I think we're good, right? That was an action shot. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, I was legs. thinking about. Uh, I this stuff is so sober. <laughs> sometimes it helps just to laugh a little bit. That's something that really so just. We're, we're doing good. We're doing good. That <clears throat> it's kind of like I do this still to this day, but sometimes when I get into a disagreement with my wife, yeah, um, for better lack of terms of an argument, but uh, I've noticed that I get I get urges to to indulge in. Uh, and junk food yeah yeah and so um usually that's what it is yeah. uh and then i either do it or i don't mm -hmm. and then and if you indulge if it, i indulge it right. what ends up happening is that i'll find something else to to munch on to like snack on uh -huh. so mm -hmm. say i'll start with a small chocolate bar right and then, okay, I'm still upset. I still don't yeah. feel yeah. good about myself. So yeah. I'm going to have a huge bowl of ice yeah. cream. Yeah, that's really the cycle right there. Yeah. It doesn't matter if it's a chocolate bar and ice cream or anything else. Mm -hmm. I, I really appreciate you sharing that. It's as common as that. It's not, yeah. it, it doesn't require uh, some monumental thing. Sometimes a monumental thing will happen. I'll give them a, a, a monumental thing, but it's the same dynamic for me in my own career in psychology owing to a number of stressors that were going on in my life, and I'll, I'll, I won't go into the details of that right now, but I will right. share the, the behavior. I began to drink more and more, mm -hmm. and as I began to drink more and more, I realized that it wasn't okay, so I became more secretive about that. Right. Yeah. And in my secrecy around that, I felt ashamed, and in my shame, I began to drink more and more, or mm -hmm. continue to drink more and more. Right. And then eventually it began to spread into recreational drugs, and so on it went. So mm -hmm. I was in a profession where I realized that the further I went down this road, I can't really be transparent about this because it, it'll, it'll, it'll bring up questions about my competence to mm -hmm. be practicing in psychology, yep. which would be rightful, 
but I was so ashamed of that coming to light, and so it became more and more hidden, and it's almost like the more hidden I got, the more ashamed I got, right. the more I needed to, and I was not aware of this at the time, the more I began to self-medicate. And yep. so I wake up at some day, five years down the line, 10 years down the line, and I've really gone down quite a rabbit hole with this. I tell this story to the clients that I work with and the groups that I lead. Mm -hmm. And and I'll, I'll tell the story and they'll they'll go, wow, well, we haven't heard, quite heard that story from a psychologist before. Yeah. But the turn that we'll take is I say, is there anybody in this group that doesn't have your version of this? Mm -hmm. And every single person will have a version of that, yeah. whether it was with their family or their church or their marriage or mm -hmm. their job. And the sad reality is that that's the dynamic that underlies kind of this vicious cycle we're talking about. So whether it's whether it's chocolate bars and ice cream in the face of upset, or in the case of me, various stressors that led to my going into a very secret uh, a part of my life that snuck up on me because I wasn't, I wasn't all that conscious of becoming secretive, mm -hmm. but it, it doesn't matter if you're conscious or not. The shame will dictate stress, and the stress will dictate relapse or using right. in the case, whether it's ice cream or drugs, and yeah. that's really what happened. Looks like there's a comment over here. This person says, this exercise is easy for me. Addiction was always connected to wanting to get away from shame or depression. And it worked briefly, but always felt, I always felt more shame later. Mm -hmm. can really relate to that. Thanks for sharing that. I can really relate to that. Part of what was going on in my own stress, kind of in midlife, that's when this really began for me, was my, my dealing with depression and dealing with it kind of through the back door. And so I was ashamed of that. I was ashamed of... Uh, feeling less energy, ashamed of having a a, a a darker mood and so on. And so I would cover it, and there'd be this moment, you know, when you have that bite of ice cream, mm -hmm. it tastes pretty doggone good. Oh, yeah. You know, <laughs> it's, or, or with chocolate, there's a little bit of a lift with the caffeine in it and so on. Mm -hmm. Well, imagine any substance, and it can be anything from chocolate to alcohol to meth. And I deal with mm -hmm. clients that deal with meth, and they, they describe the experience. In fact, I just went to see the movie last night that's out right now called Beautiful Boy. And it's a, it's a, it's a story about a father dealing with his son uh, in meth addiction. I met this man, I met the father about six years ago and his son was newly into recovery. And at the end of the movie, they said his son is now has eight years of recovery. Mm -hmm. So if I met him six years ago, it, he's made it all these years, which is amazing to yeah. me. It was a really powerful story about addiction and it feels really true to the bone with the experience of addiction. And you wouldn't have to be a meth addict right. to see that movie and realize that's how that can go. Mm -hmm. And it's whether it's yeah. again on a continuum from what you shared all the way to something as serious in this case of heroin and meth addiction. I deal with the latter a lot, but when I share my story, there's no one in the room that can't relate to it. Yeah. And by the way, though I've never been addicted to heroin or methamphetamine, right. when, when clients tell their stories, I feel like I can completely relate to it. Yeah. Because as we've talked about it, addiction is addiction. Mm -hmm. And so if you understand the dynamics of being enslaved to something, it's only just, it's a matter of the substance. And some substances are, are definitely more dangerous than chocolate. That's for sure, I'm not equating those. But the dynamic or the inner process of addiction is addiction. Yeah. It's really recognizable. And there's another comment over here. This person said, I had the secrecy thing too with my addictions and the secrecy was very stressful and that created more shame, etc." Yeah. Yes, that's the cycle you get into. That's the cycle I got into. I sometimes joke about this and it's really not funny. As I say, there's not an addiction problem in psychology because mm -hmm. if you have an addiction problem in psychology, then you become an ex-psychologist. Mm. <laughs> so there's... Yeah. There's no psychologists that have addiction problems because they're all former psychologists. Right. And, and I'm only giving that as an example. If there's not a means for discussing it, if there's not an avenue for coming out about it, and we're working on this in psychology right now, medicine and law, for example, have alternatives where you can go to your boards and say, I've got an addiction problem. You can't do that yet in psychology. Yeah. So it really, you know, already there's whatever shame I had, and mm -hmm. then there's the, the professional stigma. is like, if I come out about this, I will be an ex-psychologist. Yeah. Ironically, I became an ex-psychologist, yeah. which was fueled in some ways by my hiddenness and my secrecy. Mm -hmm. I have talked to the board about this. They know about this. Somebody asked about the movie. How is the movie? I highly recommend Beautiful Boy. It's out right now, and it will be out for a nanosecond because it's dark, but it's also inspiring, and it stars, what's the name of the actor? Steve? Steve Carell. Carell, yeah. yeah. Yeah, he does an incredible job as the father, and the son is the one who was nominated, and he may have won the Academy Award last year for the movie Call Me By Your Name, the French. Yeah, it was just, he plays the son, and by the way, this, the actor's French. 
how can a French actor sound more American than I sound? It was unbelievable to me that he was able, there was no vestige of that. That's a side thing. That's a side thing. But the father and the son, to, to see their interaction for the movie, virtually every frame of the movie has one or both of them in it. And it really, uh, it's an incredible uh, movie. As I was watching it, I was thinking, I would want every client to see it. I would want every client's loved one to see it. I'd want every treatment professional to see it. It's a beautiful boy. It's out right now. The author is David Sheff. He's the one that I met uh, six years ago, and I was early in my own recovery. He spoke here locally in San Clemente with a packed house talking about this story, and it was extremely mm-hmm. moving to me. He's a, he's a journalist who's extremely well-spoken mm-hmm. and also well-written, and there's two or three books out right now. His son has written a book, and I have that book. I've yet to read it. It's just simply called Tweaked. Mm-hmm. It's about the experience of being on meth. Beautiful Boys, the first book, and there's a second book by David Sheff, and I have them on audiobooks, and so I've listened to them, but I really highly recommend this. It's, a, it's an incredibly non-romanticized view of addiction that feels really close to the bone with any addictive process. And as, as we've talked about here before, there's none of us that haven't been touched by addiction, either personally and or with loved ones. So highly recommend the movie. It's really, I'm, I'm glad that we had a chance to talk about it today. Um, so, we, we, we're, so what we're talking about mm-hmm. is this dilemma where you get locked into shame and secrecy or conflict that isn't resolved by a chocolate bar and it needs ice cream, mm-hmm. and so on it goes. And that's really what we mean by the Catch-22, is that there's no way out of it. Every, every, it's, uh, I don't remember this story very well from Br'er Rabbit, but you can probably help me with this. Isn't it the case that somebody sticks their foot in tar, and then once you get in it, you can't get out of it, and the more you try to move, the tarier you get, and you get stuck in this? I mean, it's, the image I have is of quicksand. I've never been in quicksand, mm-hmm. um, but, but the image I have is, is if you get in it, as you fight to get out of it, it actually takes you down further mm-hmm. into it. And so that's my sense oftentimes around addiction. So that begs the million dollar question for today. How do you break the hex of addiction's catch 22? How do we get out of the quicksand? <clears throat> I want to tell you a story and it's apropos of the fires that we've had. And I, I say this with great sobriety in Northern California, an entire city was burnt to the ground, paradise. I know paradise from years gone by and it makes me really, really sad, with great loss of life in paradise. And then here more locally in, in Malibu, Thousand Oaks, on the hills of a mass shooting last week, was this horrible fire that affected uh, uh, San Fernando Valley over into Malibu, including where I used to live in Bell Canyon, really, um, really been hit closely by this, uh, the, the, the most, uh, uh, the most loss in any fire in the history of California just happened this last week. And uh, it reminds me, and I think I've mentioned him before, I had a former client in one of my groups who happened to have been uh, a Native American, raised, raised uh, on reservations, who was also a firefighter. And, he, and he, what he told our group was that in the Native American tradition, they have this idea of how you have to fight fire with another fire. And that's an image that probably we carry, but he talked about it very technically. And he, and he discussed it in terms of, literally in terms of firefighting. They call it a backburn. So if a fire is coming in this direction, you send a fire towards it. Uh, it's also called a controlled burn. And, and uh, he, he got really, t- there's a burn line and all these kinds of things. But the idea, as I understand it, is if a fire is coming towards you, mm-hmm. if you send a fire at it, fire needs oxygen to burn. Mm-hmm. And so this fire will actually take away oxygen that will kill off this fire is that the, the fire, is it, they, they meet each other in the middle and they both absorb all the oxygen and they'll burn themselves out together. So that's kind of the idea of fighting mm-hmm. fire with another fire. I want to take that analogy from my Native American firefighter friend and in, in terms of what's going on right now, I well imagine this has been going on in the fighting of fires that's going on uh, right now uh, 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 throughout California, is where there'll be controlled burns trying to control for a fire that's advancing uh, with winds of 40, 60 miles an hour. So if we think of the fire, if we start with shame as the fire, shame is the fire that's advancing towards us, what would it be to fight fire with another fire? What would it be to uh, 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 send a back, a back burn towards it? One thought is this, is, and, I, and, I, and I speak about this personally, and I hope that, that you and our audience can identify with this, and there will be an exercise in just a moment around this is that one thing that's clear to me when I sit in groups for years now of individuals who are in recovery from addiction, that contrary to popular opinion, 
Addiction, in my view, tends to take out the best and the brightest. There are many individuals in the groups I lead, primarily with men that are extremely bright men. I just sat with one of the brightest men I've ever met today in a group. And many of them, at least before addiction, were people that were deeply moral and caring. Mm -hmm. And many of them are extraordinarily sensitive and creative. And so you sit with a room full of people that are sensitive, creative people that have been taken out by heroin and meth and have friends like them who've died. And so whether you see yourself as one of the best and the brightest is less significant. What I'd like us to think of is what's the best and the brightest about you? It's not about comparing you with other people. What's the very best thing that you can say about yourself? What's the brightest thing or the brightest light that shows within you? In the Eastern traditions, they have it, they put it this way. They talk about what was your original face before you were born? Very much picked up in the Judeo-Christian tradition in terms of the idea of, it's the Latin idea of imago Dei, the image of God, the image of God. And so this is a long history within Christianity of, the, of a similar notion of like, who does God see you to be? You know, what, what uh, to put it in a, in a non-religious language, what is your destiny? What is your fate? What is your calling, your vocation? Mm -hmm. So whatever, whichever of those images grab you, what I'd like to do is suggest that as the backburn is that in the face of addiction, which would only make us feel ashamed about ourselves, what is it that addiction wants to take out? Well, it mm -hmm. wants to take out my original face before I was born. What addiction will, will flat out do is it'll burn right through my destiny and I'll be left with nothing. And so to counter that today, just for the sake of our, our being here together, would you take a moment right now to see what you can, uh, see what comes up when you contemplate what your original face is? Why are you on this planet? Why do you, what is it that you have yet to accomplish? How can you contribute? There's lots of ways of talking about it. Your original face. Somebody's calling it in right now. I've shared this with you before at the end of every morning's uh, quiet time for me, including this morning. Uh, uh, the... Uh, uh, the next to final thing that I do in my morning's meditation is express gratitude mm -hmm. for being able to uh, uh, live out today why it is that I feel like that I'm here. Mm -hmm. And it's very tied into the work that I do. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, it's not just that, because it's the relationships I have within the work, mm -hmm. but uh, I feel really, I mean, think of how uh, grateful I am to be able to spend time with you. Mm -hmm and with Austin to be able to be here and to contribute. I feel like that 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 um, I started off with years and years of training in psychology and years and years of, uh, of working in the field as a professor, as a clinical psychologist, and I lost all of that mm -hmm. owing to addiction. And, uh, you know, you could easily have thought that was a fire that just burnt everything in its path. Mm -hmm. And I did think that at the beginning. And then as healing has come, as recovery has come over the years, I realize that, at least for me, I take it that this is what I'm meant to do with the skills I have, mm. the gifts I have, and it's become incredibly meaningful to me. And virtually every day, all day long, this is what I do, mm. is, is into this. And so there was great loss of what I thought I was to do. And I don't know, because I don't know God's mind, but I do feel like that there's purpose in why I'm here, and it's hard for me not to see this as meaningful. Mm -hmm. I don't, and I didn't always mm -hmm. see it that way. So that would be some sense for me without getting into being the best or brightest at anything. It's just like, what is it that are my gifts? And uh, it's been very motivating for me in terms yeah. of my sobriety, my recovery. It's like, I want to be here and to contribute, and this mm -hmm. is what I meant to contribute. And ironically, I contribute more now knowing addiction from the inside I believe, than I did before. People have asked me, did you study addiction before? I did some, not as much as I have, and I certainly worked with addiction because there's no psychologist or therapist alive that doesn't have a significant number of people that are dealing with addiction mm -hmm. in therapy. But it, I didn't know it from the inside like I know it now, mm -hmm. and so I just feel like it's an incredible 
gift. I wouldn't wish the suffering no. of this <laughs> on anyone else. Mm -hmm. My suffering, in particular those that I love, I would not wish that on anybody. So I don't want to be uh, glib about that. But in light of the suffering, what's amazing is that Phoenix can arise from the ashes yeah. and that something that's very meaningful can arise. Mm -hmm. Do you have any thoughts for yourself? I don't want to put you on the spot. I don't, no, I, it's kind of like I just want to open up the question for all to reflect on and you can comment or not. Yeah. Yeah, uh, I thought about, uh, I just came back from from New York, uh, visiting my family up in upstate, and I had a good conversation with my brother, and uh, he just, he was very encouraging, because uh, I shared with him some, some of the struggles that I've been going through, um, and he was just very encouraging and letting me know that, uh, one of the things that stood out to me is, he told me, um, you know, no matter what happened in our, our childhood, just remember that, you know, from what I've seen and experienced being your brother, that you're, you're smart, you know, you're intelligent. If you're having an issue, you can figure it out. Mm, and I good. believe that you can do that. So um, I think that goes, kind of goes hand in hand with what we're talking about, yeah. your original face, because um, growing up, there's been times where I didn't have that sort of encouragement, yeah. you know? Yeah. It was usually, um, mm. you're not good at this, you're not good at that, mm. you're uh, you're good for nothing, you mm. know? So just having to hear that made me feel like, okay, well, mm. I feel like that's, that is what, uh, you know, not necessarily my, um, my destiny, or whatever you wanna say, or my fate, but um, I think it's a part of it, of mm. having that intelligence, that, mm. that wisdom to, to get to that. Mm. I like very much what you're saying. I think that the phrase good for nothing would be a good definition for shame, wouldn't it? Mm -hmm. I'm good for nothing. To the right. extent I believe that, it's, it's I'm, I'm immersed in shame. And I was thinking as you use that phrase, I read a biography years and years ago, 40 years ago, of Mother Teresa. Mm -hmm. And it was called mm -hmm. Something Beautiful for God. And it's almost like good for nothing on the one hand, something beautiful for God. She, she felt this for every individual that she looked at. She worked with individuals who were dying of leprosy mm. in the streets of Calcutta. And she believed that each individual was something or someone beautiful for God. She saw through that. So there wasn't a one of them that was good for nothing to mm. her. And they saw That's good. that she saw that and that transformed them. They might well die of leprosy, but they'd experienced. She said that she saw Jesus in their eyes. Mm. And my sense of it is they saw Jesus in her eyes right. as well, very yeah. much so. So it's a very different response. I that's love what beautiful. your brother said to you. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's beautiful. This is what addiction will take out. It will flatten us. And mm -hmm. so what we need to do, and I think we're doing it in this conversation, and your brother did it with you, mm -hmm. is take addiction, whatever it is, and understand it. I think there's value in understanding it psychologically. So that's why we spend a lot of time on this. It, it really to understand something is to be able to externalize it, to hold it at arm's length. If I can objectify this yucky feeling of being good for nothing mm -hmm. and begin to look at it, oh, this is what makes me so unhappy inside my own skin. This is what stresses me out. This is maybe what triggers addictive behaviors. If I can externalize that or put that at arm's length, that's half the battle won, it seems like to me. We've talked about this in, in conversations before, is that shame has the effect of paralyzing us. We get, speaking of quicksand, we get stuck in the quicksand of shame. It's actually a freeze response inside the brain. It's like a deer in the headlights, bam, just completely frozen. And I think the kind of information you're talking about when you go home to New York and talk to your brother, he's giving you information that you didn't have growing up. Yeah, exactly. And that, that information will free you. Mm -hmm. uh, I feel like the same about around this that we're talking about. If I can remove the, the shame, if I can just understand a, a, a shame in relationship to addiction for what that cycle is and hold that at arm's length if I get caught in it is something I want to conquer but it's not me because who I am is what your brother sees in you or what Mother Teresa saw in the lepers in Calcutta who I am is its original face and if I have access to that that's 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 the that's the fire that I want to grab a hold of. Yeah. I do believe that fire can be stronger than addiction. Mm -hmm. I think it takes really holding on to that, and it takes being able to nail our foot to the floor so that we don't have access to our addictions. Mm -hmm. but, but, but we can, we can, uh, we can unlearn old reflexes mm -hmm. and begin to live into this. That's really, that's really at the core of my prayer in the morning, mm -hmm. is gratitude to God for being able to live out 
my original face when uh, not so many years ago I was stuck in self-loathing, self-doubt, mm -hmm. shame, and an addiction. So if we go back to that earlier image of silencing the shame, now we're really talking about coming at it, not from silencing it by putting it out, by numbing it out, but it's literally by silencing that sucker, mm -hmm. by backburn. It's just like burning it right out. And I don't want to sound too triumphalistic about this because addiction is extremely complex. But to understand the psychological aspect of it, if, if my addiction is in many ways a function of the stress that I undergo, if the most stressful human emotion I can experience is what we're talking about, mm -hmm. being good for nothing, then if I can root out that good being good for nothing, doesn't it stand to reason I'm going to lower my stress level, be less, less vulnerable to eating chocolate, ice cream, and taking drugs? and everything in between. It's mm -hmm. a, that's, that's really the logic of it. And there's something about that that kind of takes the oomph out of, out of addiction. It's like, okay, this is a human thing. We all know addiction to something in our lives. What can I do strategically to uh, knock the legs out from underneath mm -hmm. it? Yeah. So there's hope here, it seems like to me. We'll summarize as we wrap up. There's hope here. There's uh, two uh, avenues of hope, it seems like to me. Avenue number one is being able to externalize the enemy, and the enemy is addiction, being able to externalize that. And when I say externalize it, it means I'm not addiction. I'm not addiction. Mm -hmm. Addiction will come in and wipe out me, that's for sure. Mm -hmm. But I, Bob Weathers, you, Odie Martinez, we stand separate from addiction, and addiction will come in, and it makes false claims. It says, mm -hmm. you know, if you just eat this ice cream, you'll be all better, you know? <laughs> and the sucker wraps around you like a serpent, and the next thing you're in its stranglehold. The same with any addictive behavior, it seems like to me. So let's, let's externalize that, that, our foe, that enemy, addiction, and also, we can talk about affirming ourselves as maybe the strongest, uh, back to the example of fighting fire with another fire, reminding myself that I'm, I am infinitely more powerful, more, uh, is that the rest? There's so much more resource in my original face than, mm -hmm. than shame or addiction. And you grew up, yeah. that wasn't the message you got. I grew up the same way, many of us do. Right. And, and every time your brother says that, that's gold as yeah. far as I'm concerned. Every time that I remind myself in my morning prayers of why I'm here, it's reminding myself of maybe what I didn't grow up with, but I can do that now. Mm. There's a developmental psychologist, Daniel Stern, who I love dearly. I highly recommend his book, The Interpersonal World of the Infant. That doesn't sound exciting, but it is. <laughs> I used to tell students that reading that book is like reading the Bible to me, and they began reading it, and they came to the class and said, no, it's not. It's not like reading the Bible. Anyway, uh, there's a comment, but let me continue. Daniel Stern, a developmental psychologist, talked about this, is that, that for every time you didn't get a message of being good for something, mm -hmm. for every time you got a message that you're good for nothing, it only takes one comment from your brother now mm -hmm. to eradicate 10 or 100 of those old messages. Right. So you don't have to go one for one. Mm -hmm. It doesn't take him going bam, 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 bam. That comment, that interaction you had just now recently in New York, that will, that will cover a multitude of sins, basically, mm -hmm. to use mm -hmm. biblical language for that. And I like that, and I think that that's my experience, is that if you have a few people like your brother in your life, mm -hmm. and then if you cultivate that in terms of your own inner work, you can actually begin to develop quite a momentum to this other, this other fire, this mm -hmm. other fire. And it, mm -hmm. and it can be very, for me, it's instrumental in being able to fight not only addiction, but also shame. Mm -hmm. There's a comment that came up. When you say externalize shame, do you mean talk about it with others? That's a start. That's mm -hmm. one manifestation of it. What I mean by externalizing shame is shame is inside of me. And in fact, shame makes me want to be secretive about it because right. it, not only does it feel bad, but it, it feels bad to have others see it. And so I think there's a lot to be said by being out about it. I really appreciate every time, Odie, that you bring your story here. And I, and I do it the same way. It's one of the geniuses of all self-help self support groups mm. in and around addiction, including 12-step support groups, et cetera, is they all feature being able to talk about it. So literally, that ritual of talking about shadow is a way to externalize it. But I don't think it requires just that. Yeah. I, I think there are other alternatives. I think getting it out, can uh, externalizing can be reading, reading good material about mm -hmm. about whatever it is that you've been caught in. I read a lot about shame, I read a lot about addiction, and as, as I get clearer about it, including the, reading the science of addiction and recovery, I feel less and less identified with what addiction has been in my life. Mm -hmm. And so that's a way of looking at it at arm's length. Um, 
I think there's great value for those of you that are led this to write, to write, to get it, to literally get it out. Um, um, it's, what we're trying to do is find ways to express what would like to stay inside and lure us into addictive behaviors and getting it out, whether it's talking, thinking, or writing. I think those are all starts. I'll mention one other one too, because we have members of our audience I know that are artistic in nature, and I am, and you are, is that for me expressing it uh, creatively through artistic expression, for me it's drumming, for somebody else it might be dancing, mm. for another person I have a dear friend I saw last week, he paints. It's like finding ways to express what's going on inside mm. is a way of getting it outside. So all of those, all of those can be useful for externalizing. Thanks for the question, it's a really good question. Um, yeah. I'll tell, you, I'll tell you this, when you're working with couples, for example, that are in high conflict, one of the things you want to do is create what psychology calls a superordinate goal. And all that means is you take the conflict between, let's say between you and your wife, mm -hmm. and if you can find some way to externalize that, mm -hmm. that it's not about her and it's not about you, mm -hmm. it's about something comes up and it's almost like a third thing comes up. Can we look at that and see what it is? Because oftentimes it has a cyclical nature. Mm -hmm. You know, she'll say something, you'll respond, vice versa, and it's easy to pit against each other. But can you find a can you find something that both of you can be on the same side? Whatever that is that happens with this, that cycle, that's what we want to attack. It's almost like a distraction. What's that? It's almost like a distraction. I think so. Yeah. I think so. I think like, so. I pictured it like bickering back and forth, and yeah. then something over here kind of pops up, and yeah, they right. just both kind of turn like, oh, let's you know, yeah, talk yeah. about that. It's a perfect image of it. And in a sense, what we're saying is that shame is like a black hole. And we actually talked about this in one of our previous podcasts, the black hole of shame that just kind of sucks you into it. Can mm -hmm. you get yourself out of being mm -hmm. sucked into it by looking at it, by distracting yourself okay. and looking at it? So it's almost like from a higher perspective, from another perspective. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So that's today's podcast. That's today's podcast. I really appreciate you all being here. And, and I don't believe there's any magic wands in this whole business of eradicating shame or eradicating addiction. But every time that we lay down a strand, like today's strand, I'm hoping that you can find some use in this. I hope that you'll go back and review the exercises. I hope that you'll share this with friends, Austin. hope that you'll share this with <laughs> others. And, and I hope that you come back next week, because next week what we're going to be talking about is waking up. And we're going to be talking specifically about waking up in the context of mindfulness. Mm -hmm. And so we've discussed mindfulness, and we, may do, a, we do, may do a meditation next week. But we're going to be talking about what's it like to live in a way that you're awake. Hmm. And we're going to talk about mindfulness as a way of living awake. And we're going to tie that into how does that pertain to recovery. And so come back next week to wake up with us, okay? We'll be back next Wednesday afternoon. Appreciate very much you joining us today. If you have comments or questions for Odie or me, particularly for Odie, you can write them <laughs> to me at uh, drbobweathers.com. You, you, can, you can access me that way. You can also write through the Facebook group, and Austin will be good about sending your questions to Odie and, uh, and me. <laughs> okay. Anyway, thanks for hanging in there with us today. We had a good time today. Talked about some serious stuff. I hope it wasn't too somber. And I wish blessings to you. Blessings to all of those that have been affected by the fires. And we'll see you next Wednesday. Take care.